Well, happy Thanksgiving, church. Okay, I'm a bunch of grateful bunch in here this morning. It's just like all, all, the, all the, the women, the wives are in here this morning saying, yeah, you don't know what I got coming up this week. I ain't been to the Costco yet, so just don't even, don't even start with me this morning, preacher boy. You know, this is um, across our country, a lot of pulpits today are going to be talking about Thanksgiving and the meaning of Thanksgiving and things we should be thankful about and the fact that we're not going to hell. That's a good thing to be thankful about today and our families around us, yes, but not this pulpit. I'm going to go off on a rant this morning. And I want to talk about faux foods. Faux, F-A-U-X. Foods that are disguised as something and called something else. There's something wrong with it. And I want to start out with the whole thing about faux turkeys. <laughs> Tofurkeys. Let me just tell you, there's something seriously wrong about this. And I think in full disclosure that I need to probably confess in front of you that yes, there have been tofurkeys in my household. Oh, no. oh yes. <laughs> Somewhere buried in Deuteronomy, I know there's some admonition about this. But yes, there's, there's, there's this, this convergence of things that it, it shouldn't be. And I believe that a soybean masquerading as a turkey should be one of those things. The gospel bird, which is usually fried chicken, but this time of year is turkey. It, at some point, it should have been happy and walked on two feet and had feathers. And then there's, and in my household right now, as many of you, we're just, you know, we're, we're looking at the calendar and we're looking at us, at our waistlines that accompany the calendar and we're making all of these adjustments because metabolism has turned on us again. I don't know what it is, but every 10 years, the metabolism downshifts till finally we're lacking negative calories and we're still gaining weight. I don't know how that works. So now we've got, my wife has bought these sausages in our home. And I mean, they're literally, Pastor Sean, they're, they're, they're made out of like dirt and pine cones and, <laughs> and they, 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 they got some spices in them. And then what happens is that that, that, that your, your spouse pushes it and says, it's pretty good, isn't it? It's just, it, tastes, it tastes just like sausage, doesn't it? Let me just tell you, pig never been close to this stuff. I mean, you're picking pine cones out of your teeth and you're trying to convince yourself that somehow this is a sausage. It's not the way God intended it to be. And don't even get me started on things like Oreos and Twinkies. The knockoffs of those is just wrong. <laughs> because those of us with carefully crafted palates, D. Green, we know what an Oreo is supposed to be. I'm not talking about the Sam's Club wannabe, you know, big pack tastes just like, because it don't. It's, you know there's something wrong with it. Some of you look at me like, is he going to talk about the Bible? I'm going to get there eventually. <laughs> just give me a break, okay? Pastor Brett's not even sitting there this morning, so I'm going to let it rip. 
I do. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm hungry, so I'm cranky. I'm just telling you, I got to. <laughs> but you see, you might get close to it, but it's, not, so you know, something's not right. There's something about this faux turkey. There's something about this sausage with the dirt in it. There's something here that you realize it's a knockoff. Something's not right. It may be pretending to be something, but it's not the real thing. Now you can go to New York right now and you can go to the streets and you can buy a $50 Rolex right now. They're on sale this Christmas. <laughs> 50 bucks and you can buy, and it says right on it, Rolex. But how many of you know it's not a Rolex? Now, I don't know enough about it. There's some people that are really into that. They know that, you know, some, you know, the, the, the hand is not supposed to be a sweep hand. It's supposed to do this. And some of you that have a Rolex, you know the difference. I hope you do anyway. Or maybe you got a $50 Rolex on your arm <laughs> that you paid three grand for. Joke's on you. Ha ha. Or. Or man, you show up with a new Louis Vuitton bag for your wife for Christmas that you got in the airport at Bombay. <laughs> and she knows just enough to know that those scenes are not supposed to look like this. Why? Because at some point, she's seen a real one. At some point, somebody's going to look at that thing on your arm and say, that ain't a Rolex. Why? Because they've examined the real thing because they've been close enough to it to know the difference. Wow. And we live in a day of knockoffs and fakes and good enough. And it's just, you know, it's, it's good enough and close enough. And can we tell the difference anymore? And does it even matter? Matthew 16 Jesus asked this question, who do people say the son of man is? How am I trending right now? What are they saying about me right now on Facebook? What is the, what's the word about me? Some said, well, some, some, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. In other words, we don't know. And they don't know either. But there's a lot of conversation about you. I'll give you that. But then Jesus gets right down to the heart of the matter. How about you? Not about them. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? Now, the moment had arrived. Jesus was not insecure about who he was. He didn't need to be defined by these knuckleheads. Jesus knew he was the son of God. But the moment had come now where I need to know what it is that you know about me. You know, as we approach this time of the year, there's a lot of talk about God. Everybody gets all warm and fuzzy about the baby Jesus. I mean, we get, we're getting ready to celebrate a moment, a holiday season that has in it the name of our Savior. We'll walk into the mall. We'll walk into, we'll, we'll walk into a, a restaurant and we will, we'll hear songs about Jesus. 
Songs that we could readily incorporate in our worshiping song on Sunday morning. Now, we're not going to hear Jesus songs on in March, but we're going to hear Jesus songs over the next 30 days. And everybody's going to be talking about God. But the question remains, who do you say? Who do you say? Have you been close enough to examine the real thing? And you see, it's only until we get in proximity with the real God that everything else masquerading as God, that might try to sound like God, that might try to look like God, all of a sudden we can realize those seams ain't straight. Something wrong here. This is not the real thing. And there are many voices like there always have been. Oh, we think you're one of the prophets, you know, because you got this teaching thing down and you're quoting with authority. And, all. and this, there's always been voices out there, perceptions about who God is. And those perceptions exist well into today. Nothing's really changed. It's just the way we move the information. And from those perceptions, we get a reputation about God. God has a reputation among us. It's why he said, who do the people say? Who do they say that I am? How many of you know that a lot of people know or think they know a lot about God? I was raised as a heathen in a historical denomination. Yes, you can do that. Went to church because it's what you did. Made me feel a little bit better about sin during the week. But, you know, you can, I, 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 I went through going to this church. And these are well-meaning, nice people. Nice people. And, I, and the story was told, and it may still be told, about my inquiry on Easter. I was in Sunday school. Sunday school. Let me just explain. No, never mind. Sunday school. And the teacher asked me, and she asked me by my double southern name. In the south, you can't have one name. It's got to be like two names, like Junebug or something like that. It's got to be two that go together. And usually something with a Joe in it too, but nevertheless, we'll move on. And they asked me and they said, so what happened to Jesus? Tell me about Jesus. And I'd had enough. I said, all I know is that he died, from the, he died on the cross, and that's the last we've heard from him. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but if I had been the Sunday school teacher, I'd been a little depressed by that. That maybe somehow that the real essence of what we're trying to get across was not getting communicated to this little knucklehead. And we hadn't heard from him since. That's exactly what I said. Because you see, in the church that I was raised in as a child, God was a God of reputation. It was who God was, not who God is. He wasn't a God of current revelation and recognition. He wasn't a God of relationship. He was a God back there. He was a God barely involved in the affairs of men and women. And maybe some of you, that if you came out of a church tradition, maybe that was the God that was talked about on Sunday morning. He was a God of reputation. He wasn't a God who was a contemporary. I pastored a church in North Carolina for many years. 
I can never be confused as an evangelist, but I certainly tried. And I had, I had our church out doing something almost every weekend. I mean, we did every home for Christ. We knocked on every door. Our goal was to knock on every door in our city. Talk to somebody, talk to, talk to someone about the gospel. I mean, we took our worship team out. We set up on the back of a truck and we, 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 we went to fairs and festivals. We went to housing communities. I mean, we were out all the time doing something to try to reach our community. But the challenge that I had, and as you know, as you travel down I-95, not only about every 50 miles does it go back 10 years. Let's just, let's, let, let's, let, let's just let it stop right there. But about every 50 miles down 95, everything goes back about 10 years. But the other challenge that I had in my city was the fact that everybody in my city was saved if you talked to them. Because everybody had a God of, they knew the God of reputation. Because somebody's aunt or somebody's granddaddy bought a pew back in when, and everybody was connected to a church and they knew somebody that knew a little something about God. Are you with me here? And he was a God of reputation. And the biggest challenge that we had evangelistically was getting people who thought they were saved unsaved so we could help them get saved. Because everybody felt like they were right. Because they were connected to a church somewhere. And so the biggest part of our apologetics was not proving the existence of God. The biggest part was to say, you know, I'm not sure you're really right because I don't sure you really know God. Now, that's a kind of an offensive conversation to have with somebody that thinks they're okay because their granddaddy put a pew in the church. A God of reputation. And we see in Scripture even ministry associated with reputation. Acts 19, it says there were some Jewish boys, the sons of Sceva, said they had a deliverance ministry. Folks were coming to them. They were getting, devils were being cast out, and they had some notoriety. They were regularly on TBN. They'd been on the cover of Charisma magazine a couple of times. I mean, these guys had it going on. Until one day, they got to this one case, and this thing began to speak out of this individual and said, now, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I've heard about, but excuse me, but who are you? And there was a moment, and these folks got whipped real bad. These boys ran away needing some clothing. God of reputation. Even Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Say, but God, didn't we do all these amazing things in your name? Didn't we, didn't we go out and cast out demons didn't, and heal the sick? And what does Jesus say? Depart from me. I didn't what? I didn't know you. Wow. And so we develop certain perceptions about a God that we know about reputation. And so in our imagination, then, we begin to create who this God is. It's a God of our imagination. And from that imagination, we create a God according to our specifications. Let me have my friend. I pull this out about every few years. I've had, I've had this for 20 years. This is my plastic Jesus action figure. 
Now, some of you are waiting for me to be struck by lightning. <laughs> and I don't want to be blasphemous and I don't want to be in any way not respectful to the Lord. But I purchased this at a Christian bookstore. I did. It was the only one left. I'll talk more about this in a moment, but it was on the sale rack. But this plastic Jesus, he's an action figure, first of all. And this, this, and I love it because I, this, this is, I can contain this Jesus. You, you know, my, I, 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 and he's got posable arms. I can make him, you know, do stuff. And he's got, and he's got wheels underneath his feet for he's got gliding action, it says as well. I'm just reading the package, by the way. <laughs> I'm thinking there might be an accessory kit, you know, that for walking on water, like maybe some pontoons or something. I'm not sure how that works. But I mean, here we are, the plastic Jesus. And he's molded from high-impact thermoplastic, a relatively inexpensive material that it's heated up, and you can make thermoplastic conform to almost any shape that you want it to be. Interesting. Now, you know, it's interesting that the last time I checked my Bible is that God has a nature and character called immutability, which means he doesn't change. And yet, here's the plastic Jesus that somebody, based on a set of specifications from their imagination, they created a mold to shoot the plastic in, and we come up with this version of Jesus. Now, I can pretty much tell you what ethnicity made this plastic Jesus. I have every idea that the mold maker came somewhere close to this country because this is probably not real accurate. Based on what we know about Jesus, his ethnicity, how, how his skin color, his hair color, everything about him, this probably ain't it. But this is a version that we get comfortable with because this is what he looks like in my mind. And I can do this. And the reality is, ladies and gentlemen, every one of us have created a plastic Jesus. We've created in our imagination some version of God that we want him to be. Who is as containable, as posable, come on, with all of the convenient anthropomorphic figures and, and characteristics whereby which we can say, I got it. I got him figured out. Here he is, containerized. And again, the other problem with this is that Jesus not only was cheap to manufacture, I bought him off the sale rack. It was, he was inexpensive and he was cheap. Let me just tell you something about this grace. It's not cheap. And not only is it not cheap for the real Jesus, it's not cheap for you either. It's costly, and it continues to be costly. But someone's imagination crafted this. 
But then with the specifications, there's always a set of expectations as to what this is going to do. When you were a kid, you remember the toy commercials? And I remember back in the day when G.I. Joes were like 12 inches tall. I'm not talking about these little, you know, miniature G.I. I'm talking about the big G.I. Joes. All right. Stay with me here just for a moment. All right. And I mean, you would see these commercials and I mean, there was like fire and explosions and all this. And you would go to the store and you would see something on the wall. All, and it's like, wow, that is so cool. And you would bring it home and you tear it open and it did nothing like what you thought it would do. It didn't do anything like the commercial said. There was no soundtrack. There was no fire. There were no explosions. There was no anything. It was just, you were what? You were let down. Because you expected it to do something that, guess what? It didn't do. My goodness. How many times do we get disillusioned and disappointed because the Jesus of our imagination doesn't live up to our expectations? Paul prayed to God. He was getting these tremendous revelations and it says that God sent a tormentor to him. Now, theologians disagree as to whether this was something physically going on in his body or if it was some kind of perhaps evil spirit that was harassing him. But nevertheless, we know that it says because of Paul's increasingly great revelation, 2 Corinthians 12, that God sent this thing. And Paul prayed like we would all pray. God, send this away. And what Paul knew about God being a loving, gracious God who arrested him on the, on, on the, on the road, challenged him with his salvation. And God told Paul in this moment, no, uh-uh, but my grace is sufficient for you. Have you ever been through something that was so difficult that you wondered, how did I get here? This is not consequential of sin. The, I, 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 this hurts. This is, this, this is uncomfortable. Maybe you prayed for something and it didn't work out the way that you had imagined it was going to work out. Certainly the timing and the circumstance didn't work out the way that you had scripted. And we walk away and we're just, we're disillusioned. And yet, how many of you have been through a moment like that? And yet, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God and the grace of God was so rich and so tangible in that moment that whatever the thing was you were going through, it was worth it to have that intense fellowship. Man, I've been through some dark moments in my life. You have too. But you know what I remember more than the dark moments? I remember the presence of God that came and met me in a way that was so absolutely sovereign and unique. And I just wonder, am I such a knucklehead that the only way that I can experience that intensity of fellowship from God is to get jammed up? I'd like to think there's another way. But the expectations that many times even get us there. And in spite of the fact that he's perfect, righteous, holy, he knows the plans he has for our life. And I've learned this about God. He's not afraid of disappointing us. Let me just tell you, 
As a daddy in my household, I disappointed my kids a lot and did it with a smile on my face. Yes, sir. Oh, daddy. And I dis- disappointed my children more than once because they had an expectation that I was going to give affirmation to whatever moment of foolishness that they thought I was going to sign off on. Oh, daddy, if you really love me, you let, I just expected you'd let me go. Everybody else is going. No. <laughs> Big smile. You see, God's not afraid to disappoint you. The same way as a parent, you will take something out of a child's hand that you know will eventually bring them harm. And you will make them intensely unhappy in that moment. Your six-month-old is sitting there eating big handfuls of grass. That will come later as it's mixed with dirt and some spices and you call it sausage, all right? Those days are on the way, let me just tell you. But it's six months old and they're eating big and they're, and they're chewing on a stick and you, and you take it out of their hands and then they turn purple and they scream at you. Ah! And yet, you realize that, you know what? Yes, I am making you unhappy, but at the same time, I am preserving your life by doing that. And how many of you know that God will place something back in your hand that's much better? Because that's what daddies do. They don't just take away, they take away in order to give back. Many of us, we get before God and we, we're like this. We got a hand, both handfuls full and we're still more, more, give me some more. And God's saying, you want to turn something loose here? So you can put your hands around something that I want to deliver into them. Hmm. You see, God's expectations are not ours. And he will disappoint us. And yet, when we remove the expectations that we place on him, whether it's how he does a thing, when he does a thing, let me just tell you, many times in in our defining of those definitions, we both refine and confine God to do something much more than we can hope for or imagine. What does Ephesians say? To him who is what? Able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or what? Imagine. What are we talking about? Expectations. God, I'm willing to go to the cross. I'm willing to walk up Moriah. I am willing to lay down my expectations in order to pick up yours. But many times we're terrified that if I lay them down, God won't give me something better in return. And ladies and gentlemen, can I submit to you that the gap between laying yours down and picking his up, that gap is called faith. That's where something gets built in your life called trust. Daddy, I trust you. I trust you. So we lay down our specifications. We lay down our expectations. But then we realize that because he's God, God ultimately has to define himself. You and I really can't do it well. And I'll just mention these three things quickly. He defines himself three ways. First is revelation, then by manifestation, and third, through participation. 
Let me explain what I mean by these things. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book or two. He made this statement. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Now that last word, many of us got very insecure. Except Pastor Paul, he's a universal professor. He's got it. But So I, I looked it up for, on, on our behalf. Iconoclast. A person who attacks cherished beliefs or institutions. A destroyer of images used in religious worship. God himself has to come many times and destroy an idea of who he is. Because we have superimposed, again, our own specifications, our own expectations, our own imagination to craft a plastic Jesus that is so far away from who he really is. And it starts with a potter needing to smash the pot that we've been crafting in order to remold it into an image that looks remotely like him. Hmm. And because he's God, he's the only one that can define himself. Moses, God, who should I tell him? Sent me. I just tell him Bob. Just tell him Bob God sent you. It'd be all right. No, 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 no. He said, you tell them that I am that I am is sending you. Imagine Moses stepping back from that a moment. You got to be kidding me, man. They're going to think I'm smarting off or something. You know, I'm, I'm, supposed to, I'm supposed to say that a verb sent me? Seriously? I mean, you can't even come up with a noun or at least an adjective to describe yourself. You're actually going to use a verb as your name? Seriously? But because God understood something about the nature of who he was, he realized I, this is the only way I know how to break it down so that you can begin to understand it. And as difficult as it is to define the divine, so many times it's just easier again for us to apply our human traits to God in trying to understand him. The emotions of God, the anger of God, the love of God. Oh, I understand anger. I understand love. Not like God does. Does he have emotions? Yes. Are his emotions yours? No. That's part of where the exchange has to happen. Interesting. And God makes himself known through divine initiation. We think we had a moment in church where we raised our hands and said, okay, I'm ready now. Yeah. But the reality is, Scripture says you were dead in sin. The last time I checked, dead people don't do anything but lie there. Something has to happen where the Holy Spirit comes and animates you so that you can even respond. And then in this revelation of God making himself known, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And following, we find Peter's response, which is the singular greatest moment of revelation that we see in Scripture. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Bam! There it is. 
You see, you didn't get that out of a book. You didn't get that from a sermon. You didn't get that because you're unusually bright. You got that because heaven revealed it to you. Something happened. And God continues to reveal himself to us. One of the primary ways that God does that is through his autobiography. It's called the Bible. And yes, it's an autobiography. Because we know that it is inspired by what? By God. He breathed on it. He decided which words would be there. And ultimately, it's not just a handbook for life or a place where we can dial up one of the 60,000 promises contained within its covers. It is a book about God. The nature and the character and the works of God. It's the primary way that he continues to speak to us. And then there's the manifestations. Acts 17 says, He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Let me just tell you, God, again, he's not a God of reputation. God is continuing to manifest himself to you and to me today. Every day. The only difference is that we're just not aware of it many times. You know, we live in a world of, of, of Miramax and Disney and the bigger, the better and 5.1 surround and IMAX screens to the point that I mean, we have to have these huge miracles and manifestations to say it's God. And yet God is showing himself to you and me every day. Scripture says the heavens declare his glory. Romans 1, every time that you see a sunset or a sunrise or that which God has made, he is manifesting himself through his creation. He makes himself known to us through participation. He brings you and I into something. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Speaking that through his power, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Why? So that you may participate in the divine nature. Oh, my goodness. How do we do that? That participation is only available. Why? Because God has chosen to move on the inside of you and me. By his spirit. Galatians 4. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who cries what? Abba, Father. We participate with him of the divine nature. But we participate with his presence and his person. Because now rather than God being in a temple somewhere or in an ark or somewhere else, God has chosen now what? To live and dwell on the inside of you and me by his spirit. We know God because we participate with his character and his presence as well. What about you? Who do you say that I am. And this is not a question. This is the question. You say, well, I answered it, Pastor Jim. I remember it was 28 years ago. And I remember I raised my hand and, and I accepted you. And that's not what I'm talking about. There's revelation that's necessary for salvation. But there's ongoing revelation that's necessary for sanctification. 
That what you know about God today should be very different than what you understood about God, not just 10 years ago, but even a year ago. Why is that? It's because God is not going to be what? Contained. He continues to challenge us with these notions that we've concocted about him. And he uses this thing called life to do it. Hmm. You know, I'm convinced that the primary tactic of the enemy is simply to try to wrongly define who God is. We can talk about all the things that the enemy perhaps has at his disposal. Sin and sickness and temptation and pride of eye, the, the, the pride of life and eyes and all that. But we, I got all that. But if you think about it, going all the way back to the garden, the primary attack of the enemy, can I discredit God? Can I somehow paint him in a light that he's not really him? If he were really a good God, he'd let you have this apple too. He'd let you have that knowledge and that power that he's reserved for himself. You see, he's the original narcissist. He doesn't care about you. He only cares about himself. Oh, my. That lie is a very old one. And let me just tell you, the enemy is continuing to work to try to distort the true image of who God truly is to you and to me. You know, this year, if you're like I am, you have a creche in your house, a nativity scene. We got ours when our children were small, and we have all the thermoplastic figures. We got the little shepherds, and we've got the, you know, the, the camels and the sheep and, you know, the angel. You know, we got the whole thing. It's, really, it's a really nice one. And we have a plastic Jesus. And on Christmas Eve, we used to take the plastic Jesus and put in the plastic cradle, the manger. Now, this plastic Jesus was obviously made in the United States. I mean, kid a few hours old, he's like. <laughs> but he's a happy, he's the way we want to picture him. And I want to challenge us this year as we put our plastic Jesus in our plastic manger. I want us to ask God for a fresh revelation of who he really is. Is to tear down and break down every place that we've tried to craft some definition or image of him that's not truly who he is. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, help us today. God, thank you that there is ongoing definition that you're bringing to us about who you are. Lord, we happily lay down our definition and invite you, God, come and rewrite that you are a good God, your daddy, you love us, you care for us, you're for us. Who can be against us? We rebuke and reject every lie of the enemy that would ever say otherwise. Lord, I pray over these next 30 days as we're inundated with everything, Christ this and Jesus this, singing it, sloganeering it, 
God, let something fresh be written on our hearts during this moment.